All right. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Keith Heights Baptist Church. And uh, this is a new thing for us. We're trying to uh, live stream tonight because of all the things that are going on. And um, I do have a couple people sitting here in the auditorium, so it's going to be a little easier to teach tonight, having somebody to teach too. But I uh, hope that you're tuned in. And uh, we're going to be doing a little bit more with it this week. I know a few of you do not have uh, Internet or a few folks that we know in our church that don't have Internet. And we're going to have another service available by Sunday um, where if you do not have access to the Internet, you can use your cell phone and put it on speakerphone, dial into a, a, a meeting room, and you'll hear the audio of the service. So you can still get the audio at least. You won't be able to see necessarily the video uh, unless you tune in. Uh, we have three ways to tune in, so if you're having trouble with one way or the other, uh, you can try one of the other two. Uh, but you can either go to our church website, which is keithaheightsbc.com, and right there on the main page, there's a couple links to sermons, or if you just want to scroll down the page at the bottom is the player. It should be up and going live by now. And um, so that's a, uh, probably the easiest way to get to it. Uh, or you can go to our Facebook page. It should be live streaming there. Uh, make sure you go to the page and not the timeline, though. That's critical that you go to the page because that's where it's going to. And then uh, also you can go to sermon.net and type in the word Keitha in the search bar, and uh, it should bring up our live service also. So several ways you can connect there, and uh, looking forward to a good time together tonight. Let's have a word of prayer, and uh, we're going to jump into our lesson tonight. I'm not going to uh, make you have to sit and endure my singing solo without uh, the piano tonight. So let's just... I have a word of prayer, and we'll uh, get into our lesson tonight. Father, we're so thankful and, uh, for the opportunity to meet together. And Lord, what a, uh, what a privilege we have to live in a day and a time where this type of a, an opportunity is available to us when sickness comes. Uh, we don't have to just cancel a service, but that we can live stream it and still get uh, your word out and your message out. And Lord, we do pray that it will be a blessing to those folks that are gathered together. And even though not in person, in spirit, we have gathered together and uh, have put our hearts and our minds together for this time to study your word, to learn some things that will be a help to us in sharing the gospel. And so, Lord, we do ask that you would bless it and use it tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So one of our folks that was here moved over so I can look more at them instead of uh, uh, so I'm looking at the camera and them. Um, and if you're wondering who it is, it's Brother Harold. Yes, I know. He doesn't like to be pointed out, but he's the one that showed up, so he got pointed out. Anyway, Jonathan's also here running the video. A couple things very quickly to be in prayer about, if you would. Uh, continue to pray for Miss Linda Craig, who's doing better, uh, but still has a long way to go. And so continue to pray for her. Pray for Laverne Payne. Of course, continue to pray for the Casey family, uh, Brother Bob Schwabert as well. Pray for Miss June Boland, uh, who's battling uh, some cancer now and having to go through some more intense chemotherapy on top of everything else. And also, I mentioned my sister, uh, Leanne Britton. Um, if you'll keep her in prayer as we try to find some answers for some of the problems that she's had. If you'll take your Bibles tonight and turn with me, if you have them, to the book of Exodus chapter number 4. And tonight we're going to continue our study on uh, the King James Version of Scripture. And uh, this ties in with how we're going to... Uh, work on sharing the gospel with people that are from the Mormon faith and how that uh, there are a lot of um, things that happen when a Mormon comes to a realization uh, that uh, the Book of Mormon is not true and those types of things. Uh, it leaves a vacuum, and so we've got to be able to help them uh, understand what is truth. And, of course, we at, as Baptists hold to the fact that the Bible, uh, the King James Bible in particular, is God's Word without error, that it is preserved, it is inspired by God. And we don't just have the thoughts of God, but we have the actual words of God. We're going to look at some of that tonight. And so last week we spent some time dealing with uh, the two lines of church history. And that was crucial because it affects how uh, our Bible has been translated down through the years. Um, one line of, of church faith that is the line that we hold to is that our doctrine uh, comes from the Bible, and that's the only source we use. The Bible is our sole authority of faith and practice. So uh, in the Baptist faith and a few other faiths that are out there, they hold to this belief that the Bible is the sole authority. 
And uh, if the Bible is the sole authority, then it's extremely important that we have a pure Word of God. Uh, if we don't have a pure Word of God, we cannot have and guarantee that we have pure doctrine. Uh, the other line of church history, uh, all the way back in the 1st and 2nd century A.D., uh, beginning with Origen and, and some of the uh, times there and even before him, um, later on, uh, Jerome, St. Jerome and St. Augustine, all these folks played a part in changing doctrine of what was then known as the church, uh, the state church, and uh, became known as the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, a lot of denominations came off of that, known as the Protestants. The reason they were known as Protestants is because they separated from the Church of Rome and protested it. And I just wanted to point out last week that as Baptists, we are not Protestant. Uh, we were never part of that belief. We were never part of that line. And so we didn't pull out from the Roman Catholic Church. We just never were part of it. We uh, believed in a purity of doctrine, a purity of God's Word. And we've not always been called Baptist. If you read Baptist history, you'll find a lot of people that say that the Baptists began in the 1500s over in England. And I will say this, that the name Baptist that we use today uh, came from a little bit earlier even than that and was shortened later on, but it was originally uh, known as the Anabaptists. There were the Henrichians, the Waldenses, um, so many others that uh, down through the years were, uh, were uh, accurate and very careful about their doctrine and about their transcribing of Scripture. Uh, back then, if they would transcribe Scripture, uh, many times it would take them an entire day to write just one leaf of Scripture. And that's how meticulous they were. If they made one error on the page, rather than uh, draw a line through it or scratch it out, they would throw the page away and start over again. And so they were very, very cautious, uh, this group that was uh, uh, of the line that we, we hold to. Um, again, the other line were changing the Word of God quite a bit. In fact, Origen changed it over 30,000 different places. Jerome later on changes it again over 6,000 more times in addition to that. And uh, so we believe that we have uh, in our hands the King James Bible. We'll talk a little bit more about this part of it next week and how it came down through the manuscripts and how that the ones that were so meticulously kept uh, were the ones that we get our translation of the King James Bible from. The other versions that are out there all come from another set of manuscripts that are very corrupt, and there's only a handful of them. Um, and so we're going to look at that a little bit more next week. I'm not going to preach that whole lesson to you tonight. But tonight I want to take a few moments to deal with uh, the translators themselves uh, that, that King James used. Now, I, I will say this, that uh, King James um, was used of God to bring this about, but a lot of the motivation behind King James at the time was not specifically to have uh, an inerrant and a pure word of God. He uh, was battling some things that were in other translations, and there were several other translations we'll talk about tonight, six particular ones that were heavily used to draw from for the translators. And... Uh, so there were some things that were there that he wanted to just bring uh, all of it together into one translation that could be used throughout the kingdom and not have to have uh, somebody say this is a better translation or that's a better translation and to unify all of that. So I want to take some time here tonight. If you will look in Exodus chapter number 4, and uh, is, is, this is the question tonight. Is the issue of the translators an important issue? And the answer to that is yes, it is. Uh, look with me in Exodus chapter 4, verse number 10. Very familiar story how that God is calling Moses to go and uh, go before Pharaoh and have his people delivered. In verse number 10, as uh, Moses is standing there, he says to God, And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither hitherto nor since hast thou spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth, or who hath made the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and notice this phrase, I will be with thy mouth. Notice that God does not tell Moses that he's just going to be with his mind and helping to have some thoughts that God wants him to have, but he's going to be with Moses' mouth. 
And the very important thing is, he says this, and teach thee what thou shalt say. Now, we're going to find out a little bit later in the lesson that God uses not just Moses, but over 40 other men that are under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they only say the things that the Holy Spirit gives to them word by word. They have exactly the words of God. And it's very, very important because we look at this portion of Scripture in Exodus as a wonderful illustration and a declaration of God's ability to inspire verbally, word for word, exactly what he once said. And so we find that here in verses uh, 12. And notice he says in verse number 13, And he said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee. Now stop for a moment and listen to this. God is, is angry at Moses for Moses' excuse. Even after God said, I'll be with your mouth, Moses still tells God, look, pick somebody else. I'm not the one. God gets angry about that. He says, okay, I'm going I'm to use Aaron. But I want you to notice how he's going to use Aaron. This is very, very critical to understand how seriously God takes this issue of inspiration and preservation. He says this, And also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee, and when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. And thou shalt speak unto him, and put words in his mouth, and I will be with thy mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. Now, notice the order that takes place here. God is speaking to Moses in verse number 12, and is going to be with Moses' mouth. Only to the point, in verse number 15, God says, I'll put the words in your mouth so that you can put them into Aaron's mouth. Now we have something that is no longer inspiration, but now we have preservation. But I want you to notice that even in the preservation there is God-aided assistance given to Aaron for the preservation of the Word. Because he says later on in verse 15, And I will be with thy mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. Isn't it wonderful that God gives us such a clear passage of Scripture that so vividly illustrates not only the inspiration of Scripture, but also the supernatural, God-given, aiding in the preservation, inerrant, perfect... I heard a preacher say recently, he said, it doesn't need to be revised, it doesn't need to be rewritten, it just needs to be reread. And the truth is that God's Word has been preserved without error. Can I say that one more time? Without error. I know we're in an empty auditorium here, but I'll tell you, I'm getting excited just thinking about it. Because God is able. Think about this for a moment. If our idea or our mindset, and by the way, there are plenty of critics out there. All you have to do is go to YouTube and you can find a ton of critics who will say, Oh, well, you know, the King James Version, well, there's no way it could be perfect. Because, I mean, the, they, God did use men and men are imperfect. And so there's no way that His Word could be perfect. Do you know that when we say that, we are limiting God's ability? We're saying that the only way that the King James could have been translated is with the best that man could do. But can I tell you this, that if God is able to inspire verbally, word for word, in the original languages to these men who penned them, He is just as able to verbally and every word preserve in the translators and aid them to have exactly the words that we have, that he intends for us to have in the English language without error and without, without any contradiction. Very, very important that we understand this truth. If God can give his word to Moses and allow Moses to give them to Aaron and to be with Aaron's mouth to give them to the people, then I want you to notice that God's, uh, the thing that God considers to be the most important is that the a word that the very words that he has that they make it perfectly to the to the target audience that he intends for it to go to. Now, for us to say that it was only inspired in the original languages, and that sometime in the past 
that, that preservation was lost or that inspiration, those original uh, manuscripts were lost and so we can no longer be uh, sure that we have a sure word of God is to, is to get to a place where we again question God's capable hand. Because he told the psalmist that he would preserve from that time forth his words for every generation. And either God was lying when he said that, or we hold in our hands tonight the perfectly, without error, preserved word of God. And so it's very, very important that we understand this. Because at some point, after we have talked to someone, whether it's a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or someone who has believed some other way, and they realize that what they've held to and what they have believed for so long is not true and their life crumbles, now they begin to search, what is truth? Where's truth? How can I find truth? And if we are not solid on the fact that we hold to the fact that this book in every word is God's word to us and is truth, then we can never convince them of its truthfulness. We will never have a way to give them something that they can anchor themselves to that they know without any shadow of a doubt is true and without error. Now, there are several things that were required of the translators. And I want us to look at a few things here tonight. And let me see if I got my... I'm going to try to catch up with my notes here. There's four main things here. There are four main reasons why the issue of the translators is important. Number one... Because God uses men. If you have your Bibles, keep them handy. We're going to look at a lot of passages of Scripture tonight. And I like it when the Bible can defend itself, right? And uh, that's a good thing when the Bible defends itself. I wish I had a bigger pulpit up here. Uh, Luke chapter number 19. Let's go to Luke chapter number 19. And, uh, man, I'll tell you what. If people sitting at home in their easy chairs tonight, this is great. Because if we go over time, nobody's going to care. Y'all can get up and get a, get a cup of tea if you want to, sit there in the easy chair, and we can just keep right on teaching tonight. That'll be great. And so I've got uh, about 15 pages, small typewritten pages of notes, so we can just go on and on tonight. Uh, just don't cut me off, all right? So Luke chapter number 19, God uses men to do His work. Now notice, uh, there, there are times in the Scripture that God uses Animals. You remember uh, when God used uh, the donkey uh, to talk to Balaam, and uh, again later on uh, uh, he uses. Uh, he talks about the fact when he was coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, uh, and the people said, "You need to tell them not to not to be crying out to you like that." And he said, "If these held their peace, the very rocks would cry out." And God can use anything that He's created to declare Him and to declare His word, but He chooses. To use men. That's very, very important. I want you to notice with me Luke chapter number 19 and verse number 37. And we'll find uh, once again this uh, illustrated. And when he was come nigh, even now to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, and some of the Pharisees. From among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And even though God could have used stones, what did he use? He used men, didn't he? He used men. Even though he could use animals and creatures that he had created, he used man. Look with me, if you will. In uh, Ezekiel chapter 22, Ezekiel chapter number 22, and we're going to try to get to most all of these passages tonight, so bear with us, keep your Bibles handy. Ezekiel chapter number 22, and I want you to notice as we get down to verse number 30, and Ezekiel said this, and, and God was speaking to him and said this, and I sought for a man among them, not an animal, not a rock, not a stone, not a tree, he said, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the lamb, that I should not destroy it, but I have found none. God is seeking for men. And so when it comes to the preservation of His Word, when it came to the inspiration and the penning originally of His Word, and then later on the preservation of His Word, guess what He used it? He used for that. He used men. 
So it's not a, it's not a, a good argument or a valid argument from critics of the King James Bible to say that preservation could not have, have happened without error because these were fallible men. God uses men. And He uses them in spite of their, their, uh, their abilities to uh, have problems and to be inaccurate. And when He wants to preserve His Word, it takes a supernatural act of Him to aid and to assist them in this preservation process. Now, we find this also, look with me, if you will, also in Isaiah chapter number 8. And notice this, I love this passage. I did not see this one or had not thought of this one until I began studying this and uh, about the translators. And I found this one. I thought, boy, this is a good one. Isaiah chapter number 8 and verse number 16. And once again, uh, God speaking through Isaiah says, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Now, you can have animals do the work of God, but I'll tell you this, that the Word of God and the law of God is not sealed in their hearts. The only place the Word of God can become sealed in the hearts of, that is in the hearts of men. Very, very important that we understand this. God uses and enables men in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 24. If you'd like to turn there, you may. But uh, Paul says, faithful is he, notice this, that calleth you. Who called him? Who called him? God called him, right? Faithful is he who calleth you, who also will, what? Who also will do it. So if God calls us to do a work, He is going to supernaturally enable us to do that work. We look at that as we come to the the translators and understanding that God compiled the exact group of men that He wanted at this point in history to preserve His Word without error, and then He calls them to the task, and then He enables them to do the task. Therefore, we have a, a, a fallible group of men with an infallible God aiding them to make an infallible translation of the Word of God. What a tremendous passage of Scripture that, again, supports the fact that we cannot just believe that it's up to men's ability to come up with a, an infallible translation and preservation. It must be dependent upon God's enabling them to do that. Second Corinthians chapter number 9, if you will take time to look there. Second Corinthians chapter number 9. And again, just trying to give you some scripture that shows and illustrates to us how God not only is able, but also does enable us to do the work that He calls us to do, even when it seems like man cannot do the task. Second Corinthians chapter number 9 and verse number 8. The Bible says, "...and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always..." having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. In other words, when we put our reliance and our dependence upon God, and by the way, when you hear some of the testimonies of these translators, you'll know and understand that every one of these men understood the, the sober task that was before them and the fact that they were not adequate to the task. And when you hear about their educational credentials, their linguistic credentials, you'll sit there and say, if any man was, was, was up to the task, it was these men. But when you read their testimonies, you see their humbleness of spirit as they realize that unless God enabled them, they could not handle the task at hand. The fact that they were dependent upon Him. And you know what Paul said here? He tells us in verse number 8 that God is able to make all grace abound toward us that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Whatever work it is that God has called you to, He will be sufficient for you to enable you to do the task. God uses, uh, secondly, not only men, but He uses enabled men, and we've seen that. He also uses diligent men. Diligent men. God blesses those that have a mind to work. Um, Let's turn to Hebrews chapter number 4. I'm sorry, not Hebrews, Nehemiah. Let me get the right book here, Nehemiah chapter number 4, and uh, verse number 6. The Old Testament, Nehemiah chapter number 4, and verse number 6. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together in the half thereof. Notice this, for the people had a mind to work. If you take and read the story of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall, you'll find that supernaturally they built this wall in record time. 
They did it while opposition from outside and enemies from outside were trying to tear them down and discourage them and give them a difficult time. And a lot of people would look at that situation and say, man, if I was there, uh, they would have distracted me. It would have been annoying to me to try to get to this place, uh, to get this work done. And yet the Bible says this, that because the people had a mind to work, they were able to finish this wall in such a, a great time. Why? Because God enables and God assists and God is helping diligent men. He's looking for men that will give themselves to the task. In Colossians chapter number 3, he says that we are to work heartily as unto the Lord in Colossians 3 and verse number 23. And so it's very, very important that we understand the diligence that is required to do the work of God. By the way, we're dealing here with the King James Bible but I want you to know this as a side note. Anything that we attempt for God in His service deserves us giving our diligence to it. Our very best. Look with me, if you will, at Amos chapter number 3. Amos chapter number 3. Amos is in the Old Testament. Um, Amos, Joel, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, that area, okay? So Amos chapter number 3 and verse number 7. Amos chapter 3, verse number 7. The Bible says this, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but He revealeth His secret unto His servants, the prophets. Those that were diligent. Those that were faithful to the task. There are occasions that God does use some unholy men to accomplish His purpose. But when it comes to greater matters of things, uh, God tends to find holy men diligent men, men that are, uh, have uh, a several ability, and men that are willing to serve Him. And then I want you to know this, and I've got to get my notes here. I've got a couple pages out of order, excuse me. I want you to notice this. I want you to notice, we're going to spend a little bit of our time here this afternoon, or this evening, talking about the abilities of these translators. Um, a lot of the modern translations are put together usually by a small group, usually one or two people. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but um, the English language has deteriorated. In fact, in my lifetime, it has deteriorated. It was at the pinnacle of its perfectness during the time of, of the writing of the King James Bible. This was when men like Shakespeare and Wordsworth and some of these guys had such a command of the English language. We, we live in a day where much of that is lost. And even our, our, our knowledgeable men, even our men that are well-educated in these things, would look as uneducated men to the men that lived during this time. And it's important for us to understand that you can have men with PhDs and all kinds of degrees after their names that have lived in the last hundred years that have tried to revise or to come up with a new version of Scripture and understand that they are babes in the area of literacy in comparison to the scholarliness of these translators that were used by God. I want to give you just a, a sampling. We're not going to go through and give you an exhaustive list of things here. But I want to give you a sampling here. And um, as far as their, their proficiency, all right, uh, th this was one of the requirements. It said that, that when they were looking for the translators and deciding who was going to do it, the translators must have a deep knowledge of the Bible. The Bible must be an open book to them. Now, th this time period, during the time of King James and the, the, the translating work, England was in a, a period of unbelievable literacy, and uh, the King James translators uh, were encouraged to know a scripture. Notice this. It says uh, a fellow by the name of John Green who wrote... History of the English states of the England states wrote this. He said, "England became the people of a book, and that book was the Bible. God's word was familiar to every Englishman. It was read both in church and in the home. Boy, that's a, that's something that ought to happen today, Amen. It was read both in the church and in the home." The greatest motivation for popular education was to enable the people to read the Bible for themselves to an extent hardly ever known in any country at any time. England was saturated with the Bible. This is the England from which the translators lived and learned. The Bible knowledge of the translators was of those who had from childhood known the Holy Scriptures. 
Turn with me to 2 Timothy, and I think that's important. That's an important statement because from a, a secular historian who's looking at these King James translators, he makes the distinction that these translators were those that had from a childhood known the Holy Scriptures. Look in 2 Timothy chapter number 3 with me. 2 Timothy chapter number 3 and looking at verse number 15. And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Very, very important. God puts an emphasis on this idea of knowing Scriptures from a child. And by the way, I don't think you can ever get your kids in church too early. I don't think you can ever have devotions with your family too early. Uh, I think you ought to have your kids reading their Bibles every day, all day, as much as they can saturate themselves with the Word of God. They carried these, these translators, these 47 men that were active in working in the translation work. They carried this dedication with them throughout their lives to, to know and to saturate themselves with Scripture. They were committed to their studies of the Bible. In fact, in the preface to the King James Bible that they wrote, a fellow by the name of Miles Smith, who was on the translation board, uh, had, had written, and he called it the, the Translators to the Readers. That was the preface title. Translators to the readers. Here's what he wrote. The Scriptures then being acknowledged to be so full and so perfect, how can we excuse ourselves of negligence if we do not study them? And so it was important to the translators that they not only do translating work, but they have a saturation and a working knowledge of Scripture, that they knew them from a child. The skilled application of Scriptures... Uh, and uh, it's interesting to note that the, that the translators were specifically chosen. The reason that many of them were handpicked were because of their wisdom. To that purpose, there were many chosen that were greater in other men's eyes than they were in their own and that sought the truth rather than their own praise. Most of these men were such humble men, did not even understand or know their own scholarliness, and they were chosen by men who looked at them and said, These are wise men. These are men who knew the Scriptures. These are men who were proficient in languages. Um, the languages, we're going to talk a little bit about those. Latin was universally taught back during this time. In fact, uh, by the time they were in grammar school, many of these young people at an early age of just 10 or 12 or 15 were reading fluently in Latin. Uh, it was universally taught in the grammar schools. Good students commonly entered the university at the age of 15 or 16 and were already proficient in Latin, uh, where, and was, which was required for entrance. This only makes sense because all the classes, uh, except those teaching other languages, were taught in Latin. So if you didn't know Latin, you, you were kind of stuck. That was kind of the language you went to school with. Greek was also taught, along with Latin, in the grammar schools. Can you imagine learning Greek when you're in the grammar school level? And Hebrew taught in a number of grammar schools uh, and was certainly prominent in the universities. The translators to the readers, this preface that they put, these translators wrote, they said this, they said, Therefore such were thought upon as could say modestly uh, with St. Jerome, Both we have learned the Hebrew tongue in part, and in Latin, notice this, we have been exercised almost from our very cradle. This is the scholarliness of these men in linguistics. Individually, let's look at them. There was a fellow by the name of Lancelot Andrews who was on the translating, in one of the translating group. He was probably one of the most well-educated of the group who could fluently speak in 15 different languages. It was said that, it was said that every summer he would take one month to learn a new language every summer. And that these 15 languages that he was fluent in, out of them, most all of them were antiquitous biblical languages. So they were of the old Koine Greek, they were of the Hebrew, they were of the old Latin. And so this man was fluent in them. <coughs> John Boyce, who was another fellow on one of the teams, it was said of him that he had read the Bible through in Hebrew, get this, by the age of five. He had read it through in Hebrew by the age of five. It was said that he could at any time turn to any word in the Greek New Testament. You give him a word, and he would take it straight to the Greek New Testament. He knew exactly what verse it was found in. Miles Smith, who wrote part of the preface, uh, found Hebrew, uh, spoke uh, uh, Hebrew, Chaldee, uh, Syriac, Arabic, almost as familiar as his native tongue. 
He was called a very walking library because of his extensive knowledge of history and literature. He authored the King James Preface and the the translators to the readers. This kind of knowledge in the languages cannot be repeated in any other group of translators, either before them or since them. We can believe that it is the same for other translators of which we know little of their personal lives because these were the sort of people that were being chosen for the translating work. According to the, Brit, uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica and the reference to the King James translation, the impact of the, uh, of the Hebrew upon the revisers was so pronounced that they seemed to have made conscious effort to imitate its rhythm and style in the Old Testament. The English of the New Testament actually turned out to be superior to the Greek original. Pretty interesting thought. The actions of diligent men. Not only were they well-educated and learned, but they were diligent and they were given to their task. There were 14 rule, 15 rules excuse me, given uh, to the writers of the, King, the, the translators of the King James Bible. And I want to uh, come back to those here in just a moment. Um, 54 men were appointed to do the work. 47 of them were the ones that actually did the work. So there were uh, an additional seven that were uh, there and on standby, and I'm sure were... Uh, probably consulted at times, but were not actively involved in the work. They took these 47 men, they divided them into six teams, six committees, and they put two committees in uh, three different locations. They, they wanted them all to do separate and individual work, and so they put two of the companies in Westminster, England, two of them in Cambridge, and two of them in Oxford. The cities were chosen also because of the uh, universities of higher education and learning that were there and the command of language that were found in those universities as well. In these companies, they were separate, even though they were in the same location as far as geographically. Each, each group was made up of at least seven men, and all seven men would take a passage of Scripture and individually at their own tables would translate that passage of Scripture. When they were done with their individual translations, they would come together as a committee and they would then sit with each other's translations and go over them and review them and correct them. And there had to be unanimous consent or they went back to the translating table once again. Once the seven, the group, the committee agreed or the seven or or some of them had eight or nine in them. But once the committee agreed and were unanimous on the individual translations without, without even one error in them, without even one change in them, then they would take them to the other five committees. And those other five committees then would sit and take and review and correct once again all of those things. At least 13 different times now this translation work has been uh, looked at. It's been carefully gone over. And once again, unanimous consent was needed. Then there was a final review committee that was made up of two men from each committee. And they came together as a final review board and they took the finished work of all of these revisions and all of these reviews and all of the corrections. And once again, as a final overall review committee, went over them again. And again, unanimous consent was needed to approve and say, yes, this is an accurate translation. There were a lot of uh, things, that the sources that they drew from. And we're going to talk a little bit more about these next week, but this is an interesting thing. There were several Bibles that were used in the translation work. Tyndale's Bible was probably uh, one of the, uh, the strongest uh, translations that they pulled from. In fact, as much as 80, some scholars even say as much as 90% of what we have in our King James Bible came from the Tyndale uh, translation. They just went over it, made sure it was okay, and signed off on it. Said, you know what, Tyndale did a great job there, and we can't improve on that. Here it is, and they sent it on through. But there was also the Bishop's Bible, uh, the Geneva Bible, the Great Bible, the Matthew's Bible, the Cloversdale Bible, and all of these were drawn on to try to be a help. In fact, um, it was interesting that when the king commissioned this, he had set some rules. In fact, I want to look at those rules real quick with you. Because it's interesting that uh, at the very beginning, <clears throat> the king, one of the rules that the king had was that the ordinary Bible read in the church, commonly called the bishop's Bible, be followed and as little altered to the original as the original will permit. And yet they used the bishop's Bible very little. That was kind of one of the rules that they were going to use it as much as they could if it did not deviate from the originals. 
And so with the, the manuscripts that they had to work from, and we're going to talk about the manuscript lines next week, with the manuscript lines they had to work from, uh, they looked at the bishop's Bible and said, no, there's too much wrong with it. And then they came back to Tyndale's Bible and said, yes, his is much more in order, and they began to use a lot more of his stuff. So the second rule was the names of the prophets and the holy writers with the other names in the text to be retained as near as may be, uh, according as they are vulgarly used or commonly used. Um, the old ecclesiastical words were to be kept. Amen? That's a good thing. The old ecclesiastical words were to be kept as the word, as the word church, not to be translated as congregation. Uh, so again, they, they tried to keep some of the old uh, ecclesiastical works with regards to the church and preaching, that sort of thing. When it, any word hath diverse sig- uh, significations, in other words, when there's multiple possibilities of what a word can mean, that it was to be kept... Uh, which has been most commonly used by the most eminent fathers being agreeable to the propriety of the place and the analogy of the faith. So looking at uh, several things, uh, the doctrine of faith, is is it in agreement with it? We're not going to change our doctrine here. Uh, And then they said, um, is it agreeable to what the notable early fathers said in their writings? And uh, is is it uh, it, uh, in agreement with that? And uh, also, uh, what was the other one here? Uh, the propriety of the place. In other words, does the context support it? And so those three things were taken into consideration whenever there was a uh, possibility of there being another type of uh, uh, definition for something uh, in a word that could have multiple meanings. Uh, The fifth rule was the division of chapters were to be altered either not at all or as little as may be if necessary so required. And so they very little changed uh, the chapter and verses. By the way, Go look at some of the modern translations at how much they have changed the chapter and verse headings. You'll find sections of verses that are just not there. And uh, very, very important. Number six, there were not to be any marginal notes affixed, but only for the explanation of the Hebrew or the Greek words, which cannot without some circumlocution be briefly and fittedly expressed in the text. Uh, so such quotations of places were to be marginally set down as shall serve for the fit references of one scripture to another. Every particular man of each company to take the same chapter of chapters and having translated or amended them severally by himself where he thinks good, all to meet together to confer what they had done and agree for their part what shall stand. As any one company hath dispatched any one book in this manner, they shall send it to the rest to be considered of seriously, of seriously and judiciously for His Majesty to be very careful in this point. If any company upon the review of this book so sent shall doubt or differ upon any places, and wherewithal to send their reasons, to which if they consent not the difference to be compounded at the general meeting, which is to be the chief persons of each company at the end of the work. And so any discrepancies, anything that they had, they had to put it in writing, and it went to the final review panel, and if they did not do it, it was going to stand as, as it was. Uh, when any place of special obscurity is of doubt, uh, letters to be directly by uh, be directly by authority to send to any learned in the land for his judgment in such a place. And so there were uh, consulting of other scholars throughout the land even during this time. Letters to be sent from every bishop uh, to the rest of the clergy, admonishing this them of this uh, translation in hand, and to move and charge as many as being skillful in the tongues, meaning the different languages have taken pains in that kind or uh, to send their particular observations to the company, either in West, Westminster, Cambridge, or Oxford. So they were uh, asking men of renown around the country that had learned uh, knowledge of the languages to send their input as well. Uh, the directors of each company to be deans of Westminster, Chester, and the king's professor in Hebrew and Greek in the two universities. These translations to be used when they agree better with the text than the Bishop's Bible uh, versus the Tyndale, Cloversdale, Matthews, Whitchurches, or Geneva uh, Bible. Uh, of course, uh, we find that Tinsdale ended up becoming one of the major ones. Beside um, the said directors before mentioned, three or four of the most ancient and grave divines in either of the universities not employed in translating to be assigned by the vice chancellor upon conference with the rest of the heads to be overseers of the translations, as well uh, Hebrew as Greek, for the better observation of the fourth rule above specified. And so they even used the scholars in the universities there. And uh, so, again, you can see the carefulness. And that's what I want to get across. You're not going to remember all the rules you're not going to take those 15 rules and read them to a Mormon who's trying to... 
But I want you to understand and get a scope of how meticulous and how careful this particular Bible was translated into the English language. Add that then, as if it needed anything added to it. The enabling of God to preserve without error. And can I tell you this tonight? I can stand up here and hold this book in my hand and say in this book we have the exact words that God exact, God wanted us to have in our language. Not His thoughts, not just the, the, the concepts of God. Every word in it is a word that God specifically wanted you to know and He wanted me to know. And folks, I can tell you this, we can very strongly stand on this issue. Now, it's one thing I want to be careful of, and I always try to be careful of this. We've only gone through about half of the material tonight, but it's about that time. Y'all have listened for 45 minutes, and at some point you're going to be like, wow, that's just too much to absorb. But one thing I do want to mention as we leave, and we'll pick up here next week. Um, there has been uh, well-meaning people who hold to the King James Bible because they were taught that that's what they ought to hold to. Can I tell you this? Uh, if you don't know why you're holding to the King James Bible, you need to know. Not just because your preacher told you to. Not just because if you don't, you're not right with God. You need to be convinced in your heart that this is God's preserved, inerrant, infallible Word. And if you can't do that tonight, then you need to start learning and understanding and, and, and get into the Scriptures and find out what God said about His preservation. Find out what God talks about that, that He was going to preserve from that time forth and for every generation His words. That they were not going to be faltered. They weren't going to be uh, twisted. They weren't going to be corrupted. And then all the generations following would not have His Word. But that He was going to preserve them. How strongly in the book of Exodus He was, he was willing to go to any extent to not only inspire Moses, but to preserve His words through Aaron. And then we need to be convinced in our hearts. Now that being said... There have been people that have stood, and they have stood strong on the King James Bible. And by the way, we need, a, we need a revival of this. We need a revival in our country of people who will not take a corrupt word of God. I was listening to a preacher one time, and he said this, If a starving man has no bread, and all I have to give him is moldy bread, I would rather give him moldy bread than none at all. And I, I, think, I think I understand the guy's concept on that, but why do we just have moldy bread? Why not understand that we have a pure Word of God? Why not understand that we have something wholesome and healthy that we can offer to a world? And I, I want to say this. In years gone by, and I have sat under the preaching of this, I have been in ministries where this was touted, and I've been in camp meetings where a lot of amens and a lot of shouts were given as we said a lot of hurtful things about people who do not hold to the King James Bible from our pulpits. Can I tell you this? We need to be careful that we love people, but let's point them the right way. We don't have to compromise on this book, but we don't have to be mean either. We don't have to go out here and tell them that if they didn't get saved in the King James Bible, then they're not saved. That's not right. We need to understand and we need to know that this is the Word of God. We need to give it with boldness and with power and with confidence, knowing this is the preserved and inspired Word of God. But we need to do it with compassion. And one of the things that I believe has been a downfall to the King James issue in years past is the spirit with which we have held to our belief. That it has created more harm than good in some cases when we have gone out here and browbeat people and hit them over the head, rather than educating them on why the King James Bible is preserved and inerrant. The reason that's happened is because a lot of people believed in using the King James Bible, but they didn't know why. They, they couldn't educate. They couldn't tell somebody why this is the preserved Word of God. Our goal in teaching these lessons the last couple of weeks and probably at least another week or two is for our church, not, you're not going to know all the rules by heart. You're not going to remember these guys' names by heart. 
But I want you to have a working knowledge. I want you to know in your heart. And I want you to be able to give at least a simple answer to somebody as to why we believe that this is the book of God that God has given to us. Not just a copy or a corrupt text, but this, this is actually the words of God to me and the words of God to you. I hope that will be a help to you tonight. And I know we went through a lot of stuff. and There was a lot of material there. I, I'll hand these out. I'll have them available to you uh, so you can study them a little bit more. Uh, again, as we said before, uh, at the end of this study, I'll give you a list of resources, things you can be reading, and people that you can, uh, for the most part, trust what they have compiled about the King James Bible. Uh, you need to be careful what you read out there. There's a lot of people that uh, are misleading. They talk a lot about things they don't really know about. And so you need to be kind of careful of those things. But I hope that will be a help to you. I hope it hasn't been too hard for you to tune into the streaming tonight. Uh, it's gone better than I thought as far as me. I was worried about trying to teach to a, a, a camera. I do want to thank Brother Harold for being here so I had somebody at least to talk to. But uh, let's bow our heads in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the time together tonight around your word. We're thankful once again. Lord, what a joy to live in the day and age where uh, we have this kind of technology. And I'm thankful that we have leadership in our country that even when they had to come out and say we can't uh, gather in groups larger than a certain number, they actually encouraged churches to do live streaming and to continue the messages to their people. And Lord, I'm thankful for those kind of religious liberties and freedoms. We're thankful for your word that we can know, that we can stand on firm, the, the, the foundation of having not just a Word of God, but having the Word of God, having everything that you ever intended for us to have, word for word. And Lord, we're thankful for that tonight. If these translators had had no education, and all we had to trust in was your supernatural aiding them, Lord, that would have been enough. But when you take men of such exceptional skill and talent that you enabled them to be, and then you add to it your, uh, your supernatural aiding in the translation process, Lord, it's just a wonder to us. You didn't have to do it that way. You could have required us to have more faith that you just supernaturally did it. But Lord, you have made it such an easy thing for us to know and to understand. And you have done these things, I believe, for our benefit. Because you know how suspect our frail minds are, how we put the frailty on human nature. And to use men of such renown and such education has been something that just is an encouragement to us along the way. Lord, we want to believe in your supernatural preservation, and that's the biggest part of it. But thank you for doing it the way that you did it. Dismiss us now with your blessings. Bless those that are at home tonight, and that they will be encouraged, and that hopefully very soon we'll be back together again as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.